In Puerto Rico, they call themselves Boricua. But Boricua is more than a name for a person from Puerto Rico. It's a way of life that means embracing the beauty that surrounds you, seeking adventure no matter where it may lead, and sharing that vibrant spirit with everyone you meet. And you can experience all that warm, welcoming, passionate culture set in a tropical island paradise without the need for a passport for U.S. citizens or permanent residents. Learn more about how you can live Barigua at discoverpuertorico.com. In Puerto Rico, they call themselves Barigua. But Barigua is more than just a word to identify a person from Puerto Rico. It's a way of life that means embracing the beauty that surrounds you, seeking adventure, and sharing that vibrant spirit with everyone you meet. In Puerto Rico, you can experience a tropical paradise with world-class beaches. You can immerse yourself in the rich 500-year history of Old San Juan, where there are stunning forts, classic town plazas, and iconic monuments. You can indulge in a foodie paradise with renowned restaurants, seaside kiosks, and an innovative cocktail scene. And you can take in an abundance of natural wonders like El Yunque, the only tropical rainforest in the U.S. national forest system, all without the need for a passport for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more about the warm culture of Puerto Rico and how you can live Boricua at discoverpuertorico.com. I'm Aislinn Green. This is Travel Tales by Afar. In every episode, we hear from a traveler about a trip that really meant something to them. And in this season, we're actually sending people, writers, comedians, playwrights, out into the world to explore life's big questions. In this episode, we'll fly to the UK with Brendan Francis Noonan. Brendan is a culture journalist who has been covering travel in one form or another for most of his career. He once penned a travel column for CNN.com, He's written travel features for various magazines, and he currently has a travel podcast for Pushkin Industries called Not Lost. But in all the time he's been traveling for work, there is one country he's never covered. Until now. My mother's family is Croatian. Her name is Neta Salomon. My uncle's name is Vladimir. When I was a kid, we adopted my cousin, Marenko. And in the summers, we would visit my cousins, Zoran and Dragon. And their parents, Anka, Boris, Ante, Seika. My name? Brendan Francis Nunum. Clearly, something got lost in translation. Well, not exactly. My father's name is Francis John Nunum. And he hails from an Irish family. We're mostly Irish, and that's where Brendan comes from. So technically, I'm from two distinct ethnic worlds, but I've always gravitated towards the Croatian side. There's the food. I love garlic, fish, olive oil, artichokes, figs. There's the genetics. I'm tall and lean like my Croatian relatives, and my stomach can handle garlic, fish, olive oil, artichokes, and figs. Lastly, there's the vibe. The Irish side of my family, very Catholic. The Croatian side, godless socialists. Just like me, comrade. So when I grew up and started traveling on my own, it was only natural that I visited and wrote about Croatia over and over. Ireland, not so much. 
Then, in early 2020, I was invited to a work conference in a small town in County Limerick. And from the moment I arrived, I felt at ease. The Irish people were kind, the abundant greenery lifted my spirits, and I was never once called Brandon instead of Brendan. In fact, the only real trouble I had was understanding why I hadn't come back sooner. I say back because Ireland was the first place I ever traveled overseas. When I was nine years old, my family flew to Dublin and drove to Donegal County in the northwest of Ireland. That's where my grandmother's family hailed from. Thinking back on it, it's honestly where I fell in love with travel in the first place. I loved air travel, the lavish Irish breakfast, and being able to stay up late. And even though now air travel's hell on earth, a high cholesterol diagnosis won't even let me look at an egg, and I fall asleep drooling on myself by 10 most nights, I still love travel. So three decades later, I decided to go back to Donegal to see what I'd been missing. Part one, town. I landed in Dublin, moved through the airport, went to the rental desk where the man said he had a compact car for me. A compact, I said, mock horrified. You know, I'm arriving in Ireland as a single man and you're ensuring I'll stay that way. He cracked a smile. He immediately got where I was coming from and what I was after. All right, let me see what I can do. Note, don't worry. That's the one and only time I'm going to imitate a brogue in this entire podcast. I was pleased with myself as I slipped behind the wheel of my upgrade, a brand new four-door Audi sedan, decidedly not a compact. Now, if I'd said something like that in America, I would have been met with a blank stare. In Croatia, well, I wouldn't even have tried it. But here in Ireland, it seems the people know from charm, and they were willing to reward it. Maybe these are my people, I thought. Do you know why the road is so narrow? Ann Shannon is a guide at Donegal Castle. I pulled up to our appointment a bit frazzled. The tires on the left side of the car were scuffed up from repeated run-ins with hedges and curbs as I drove the long distance from Dublin to Donegal. Just back to the old custom. Uh, the Irish word for road is boher, and it comes from the word for cow, which is bow. And the old laws of Ireland, the Brehan laws, stated that the roads were to be the width of two cows wide. So there you go, some of them are still the width of two cows wide. And my car is the width of four cows. <laughs> there you go. That's where you get a bicycle. <laughs> now I understood why my friend at the car rental counter was willing to part with the big sedan. The roads are too small for them, so everybody wants to drive compacts. He hadn't yielded to my charm offensive after all. Instead, he'd gotten revenge for my cheekiness. Relieved to no longer be driving a huge car on the wrong, uh, I mean opposite, side of a teeny cow path, I strolled with Anne around the grounds of Donegal Castle, which sits in the middle of Donegal Town. And to be honest, it's pretty modest as castles go. Just a three-story building with one long, roofless wing, but I wasn't visiting it for architectural reasons. Well, we're in Donegal Castle, which was a castle built by the O'Donnell clan in the 1470s. Now, the O'Donnells <clears throat> came to power around the year 1200 and they built several castles in Donegal, some of them for defence. This one here was built essentially for defence. And that is shown in the width of the walls, which when you go inside are about three yards wide. Can I interrupt you right yes. there? Uh-huh. So my grandmother's name was O'Donnell, Frances O'Donnell. Uh-huh. Well, so when I was little, we came here. Uh-huh. 
And like in my head, I was like, oh, this is where long ago my ancestors lived. That's probably not true, is it? Well, let's say at every corner, every juncture in Donegal, there's no Donald. There's a lot. It's a huge, big name here. Anne wasn't lying. During my time in Donegal, I would encounter O'Donnell pubs, O'Donnell solicitors, O'Donnell construction firms, and perhaps my favorite O'Donnell enterprise, O'Donnell mature cheese and red onion crisps. That's right, potato chips flavored with onions and aged cheddar cheese. Now, I don't know what the Gaelic word for umami is, maybe omami, but whatever it is, these chips had it. When I'd eat them, I'd think, man, these really are my people. And my relationship to the O'Donnells explains why I visited here when I was nine years old, even though Donegal, back then in the 80s, wasn't exactly a tourist destination. If anything, it was considered a little perilous at the time because of its proximity to Northern Ireland. Donegal is in Ulster province, an area colonized by the British in what is known as the Plantation of Ulster. It's called the Plantation because in 1609, the British began planting people there, mostly from Scotland and Northern England. And at this time in history, most of them were of the newly reformed Protestant religion. So the Plantation of Ulster, going back to that time, is the basis of so many problems that this island has had. They basically tried to, yeah, uh, weave in some British Protestant folks and... Make it a little England. That's what they were trying to do, make it a little England. But it really wasn't. It wasn't a success. Colonization was not a success. Now, if this seems like a heavy topic to bring up in an episode of a travel podcast, I included it because it emerged unprompted within the first 10 minutes of my chatting with Anne. And that's because, as I would discover... The history lives right under the surface around these parts. In fact, it came up again later that same day when I met up with Neve Coughlin, a local historian. Um, we're sitting on what's known as the Diamond, which is the central area here of the town. The Diamond is a very particular term that you'll only hear in Ulster in the northern half of Ireland. And it stems from plantation times when the English came and colonised here. And this is what's known as a planned town. So it has a central area of commerce with streets radiating off. And this was used as a marketplace from the 1600s on. Eve and I sit in the diamond, which is shaped like a triangle, and look on as tourists scutter to and fro between shops. Local girls sit on a bench nearby and giggle. We are sitting in the heart of Donegal Town. The region is also kind of considered Donegal, and then there's a town Donegal. What is their relationship? It's not the county town, and it's not the main town, but it would certainly be, as far as tourism is concerned, it would be, I think, certainly the most visited town. Um, as you can see, it's very picturesque, and it has a castle slap bang in the center as well, which is a draw. The tourists love a castle. <laughs> well, everyone loves a castle. Who doesn't? I came here once when I was long ago, when I was nine, my father took four of his sisters. So it was my aunts, my father, my mother, me and my sister. And by the time we got to Donegal, they were calling it the ADC tour. Oh, right. Another damn castle. <laughs> That's good. So they were like, show us the pub and join us after. Brilliant. <laughs> like that. Neve and I decided to take a walk through the village. How many pubs are in this town? <laughs> Too many to mention. <laughs> yeah, we're. I'm seeing like half a dozen right in front of me. Yeah. Yeah. We're well served with drinking establishments, that's for sure. 
past the Old World department store in the center of town. It has McGee's, which is a draw and, and brings people from out of town. McGee's is the... It's the store here that um, would have been established in the 1880s, um, buying and selling and trading and ultimately manufacturing Donegal cloth, sometimes known as Donegal tweed. And it's a beautiful department store nowadays and is, you know, draws people from all over the country, really. And past the statue of my old ancestor, Red O'Donnell. This is Red Hugh I, who has, um, I think there's a little bit of artistic license taken in the depiction here, but I think he's got a certain charm, a certain uh, je ne sais quoi. I come and visit him every day and say hello, and he never... You do? Yeah, I do. He never contradicts me, he never talks back, he's a perfect gentleman. He does. I'm very fond of him. <laughs> and finally, we arrive at what looks to be an ADC, but it's something different. So now we're approaching Donegal Abbey known as Donegal Abbey, founded in 1474 um, by the O'Donnells. Who else? As a Franciscan Abbey. When you're wealthy and powerful as a, an O'Donnell king would have been, a great way to show your wealth and privilege would have been to establish a religious order. So I own this, is what you're saying? Yeah, it's all yours. <laughs> Excellent. I mean, it looks like it needs a little work. Yeah. But yeah, so we're basically on this little edge of the bay, lip of the bay... Uh, looking out on wooded islands. It's also the ruins of a 15th century abbey. It, this would have been a, a very important seat of religious learning, religious education in the 1500s. It was a Franciscan friary, and um, the Franciscans follow the teachings of St. Francis of Assisi. Now remember, my middle name is Francis. My grandmother's first name was Francis, and my father's name is Francis. I think I see how this got started. Part of those beliefs would be a quiet life of poverty and contemplation. A life of poverty and contemplation. Hmm, that also sounds familiar. And I have to say, if I'm going to spend my days in quiet contemplation, I can't really think of anywhere nicer. Isn't that glorious? Look at that. The view is stunning. It's like the, the water looks like silver. The clouds are dramatic. Yeah, it's lovely. As you say, you're looking across a beautiful wooded little islands. You know, it's gorgeous. Part two, C. We had a lot of dolphins on the last tour. We had quite a few, and we, so. Keep, I've been very, very positive away, Wadi. Yeah, very positive. Now we've seen them on the last trip, Chrissy. We've seen them all day. So, hopefully, you'll get a chance as well. The next morning, I'm up early and on a boat heading out to Sleeve Lake, spelled entirely different than it sounds. Sleeve Lake's a Gaelic word, which means mountain of stone pillars. But the name is also shorthand for the mountain's dramatic cliffs. Visitors can take a hike and view them from above, or they can stay seated and view them from the sea. Paddy Byrne is the skipper who leads tours around here. Picture Irish Yosemite Sam, except a do-rag instead of a cowboy hat, and a brogue instead of a southern accent. How long have you been uh, doing these tours? I've been doing these tours for about since 1995, in various shapes and forms. I started off as a, with, a, with a fishing boat, uh, a 21-foot salmon boat punt. We were working the um, fishing the salmon. Yeah. 
And when the season closed, the guy that owned the boat decided he would uh, leave it in the harbour for a while. He had no way to transport it. Yeah. So I asked him, could I take it out for a spin? And he said, no problem. So there was a couple of guys on the pier and they said, will you take us fishing? So I took them fishing. When I got back in, there was somebody else wanting to see the cliffs, so I took them out to the cliffs. And for the rest of that summer, I took them in and out on the, on the boat. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's just, geez, you know, this could be, this could be fun. We make our way through the dark Atlantic Ocean. Sleeve League's 2,000-foot cliffs loom above. The green background one grows accustomed to while traveling by land in Ireland is soon replaced by dark blue water and milk chocolate-colored rocks jutting from the sea like sculptures. And the edge of the coast is jagged, like a side of shattered crockery. Paddy cuts the boat's engine and tells us a story, his arm outstretched toward the cliffs. In the old days, the women would climb down the cliffs behind there. They would gather any wreckage that's washed in on the shores over here. And they would haul it back up the cliff again. They would carry the wreckage up with them. In case you didn't get that, he's saying local women would carry usable ship wreckage they found on the shores here all the way up the edges of the cliffs. People are often horrified to find the women done it. Where were the men? Well, the men were doing important stuff. The men would have been reading newspapers and drinking beer. They'll be drinking Guinness. But they'll be doing it in England or Scotland. They wouldn't be at home. They would hire themselves as farm laborers. Working for peanuts would move off then into um, England and Scotland. They would maybe digging railway tracks, digging canals, tunnels, whatever work was available. So they would work away in England until maybe April, May. Come back home, meet the new family member, probably create another one. They would start to leave the homestead self-sufficient again for another year. And that was the cycle they had. How long was Jimmy away? Ah, Jimmy was away 15 years. How do you know that? He's got 15 fine children. <laughs> Every year he came home, he met the new one. It was a well time. I was learning the past is never too far away in Ireland. I could imagine these women hauling shipwrecked treasure up the steep cliffs and raising a gaggle of children on their own, because I'd grown up with the same sort of strong women. My grandmother Franny, my aunts Margaret and Catherine, Nan and Jeannie, all independent and determined whether they are with a man or not, doing what had to be done. Patty brought us around a bend and threaded two hulking rocks sticking from the ocean. He idled the boat and then looked up with pride. This is our highest point here now, folks. 1,972 feet, which is just less than 600 meters. We have a little cliff down the west coast of Ireland called the Cliffs of Moher. We call them the Cliffs of Less, <laughs> because ours are almost three times higher than them. Another respect. Uh, the other ones are nice and regimental. They look like they were built with a square and a plum. These look like something I would have built. And like a lot of things I built, it's falling down again. But no, it's beautiful. It really is. Part 3. Country. The Wild Atlantic Way is a 1,500-mile tourist trail along the west coast of Ireland. It was invented in 2014 to attract travelers, and it's worked. But as you drive along it and look upon the snarling ocean and the miles and miles of naked hills around you, you start to understand how hard life must have been here before modern technology and the global economy arrived. I took a detour from the Wild Atlantic Way 
and visited Glentees, the town my most recent ancestors hailed from. It was early in the morning, and everything was quiet. And when I found the local historical society, it was temporarily shut down. If I wanted to get a better sense of the world my grandmother's family left behind, I was going to need to go someplace else. I think this is God's own country. Uh, of course, naturally, as both by as a Donegal man, I'm biased, but you'll get beauty like this, uh, comparable beauty any in any county in, Air, in Ireland. But um, I think it's a beauty, a beauty of God. Glen Columkill Folk Village sits on a crook of Glen Bay Beach. It's a clutch of thatched cottages on a hilltop, founded in 1967 by the man you just heard, Father James McDyre. The Folk Village is a replica of the impoverished rural community McDyre found when he was assigned to this region by the church in 1951. When Father James first arrived in the parish, there was no electricity in people's houses, no piped water, no parish hall, no industry or economic infrastructure in the area. He set about getting recognition and grant aid from the people whom he'd like to call the bureaucratic authorities. After Father McDyer modernized the local village somewhat, he undertook an act of karmic jiu-jitsu. He decided to create a replica of the pre-modern village he'd first encountered, and he did it to give employment to that very community. I toured the folk village with the woman in charge, Margaret Cunningham. It's a funny little place. When you walk into the first cottage, you encounter a life-size replica of Father McDyer himself. I um, was already frightened by that guy in there. Yes, that's a replica of Father James McDyer, who founded the museum. I'm sure you would have picked up a few bits and pieces about him throughout the place. It's startling, though. That <laughs> Have you ever been spooked by that uh, mannequin? Yes, and every single visitor is. And I think the funniest thing I've ever seen was the smallest man in the parish carrying him through the grounds. To be, we're, put, we're putting a fresh coat of boot polish in his hair, but not as quite. It was really funny. Somebody was driving over the road, and they seen this really tiny man. He's about four foot nothing, carrying that huge statue. And it was just the funniest. He looks like Ronald Reagan. Each little cottage in the village is filled with artifacts that tell the story of Ireland. There's a replica of a town store with old Guinness beer bottles, a fisherman's cottage, and a famine pot, the cauldron where food scraps were accumulated and boiled into soup during hard times. It all felt a bit like a movie set, and apparently that wasn't a coincidence. When we were small, somebody was musing the fact that Liam Neeson might play Father Madeira in a movie. So what happened only last March? Who came here to to be in a movie in that particular cottage, only Liam Neeson. This was Liam Neeson. This here was Liam Neeson. No. Do you want to take a look at it? Yeah. And when, and, but, but what was he doing here? What was the movie? It's an action here? movie called In the Land of Saints and Sinners. And this, did, was he, he was using this as a, a part of the set? Yeah, this was the set. It's called Finbar's Cottage. And if you walk around, uh, the movie was based in the 70s. So we became, we fell heir to wonderful... Um, props and artifacts from the 70s because yeah. this house went to the 60s when the museum opened in 67 right, 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 right. but then everything in it it kind of we brought it up to the 70s it's funny the way hollywood movie made you made us kind of revamp back into a proper home feeling also liam neeson's not a bad looking guy he's not a bad looking guy i got to meet him and when i was leaving he says do you not want a photograph <laughs> he said <laughs> that of course i do margaret's not an actor herself but she is right out of central casting beaming confident game, 
I felt a kinship to her immediately. So what are some three things I should, I should remember or take away with me when I'm here in Donegal? Well, I think for us in particular, the location, the scenery, the beauty, um, the culture, the craft, you know, the fact that that has lived on. And I hope you get to hear some of the music, yeah. music and the people. The music, the people, the crafts. What are the people like in Donegal? What differentiates them from other parts of Ireland? I think what I've heard before is that because we're so cut off, a lot of our way of life and kind of humour and culture was kept because it wasn't infiltrated as much in other ways. And um, people tend to like our accents. Do you like our... Your accent's pretty damn charming. I'll give you that. <laughs> Yours isn't so bad either. <laughs> it's been really nice talking to you, Brendan, and I really appreciate nice talking with you. coming here because, you know, for a long time we were kind of... I suppose we were kind of forgotten, but um, not anymore. <laughs> My last night in Donegal, I stayed in the town of Ardera, about 40 minutes north of Glencombe Kill, near another inlet. For dinner, I had fish, chips, and a glass of wine. I'm still my mother's son, after all. After I ate, I strolled down the main street and poked my head into a local pub. There was a small room with a bar that opened out into a longer room, which was filled with musicians performing songs. They weren't a distinct band, but instead locals who showed up with their instruments and were taking turns performing. There was a handsome silver-haired man with a flute, a lady with spectacles and a string around her neck playing fiddle. All around them, a crowd gathered holding pints of beer. I took a seat at the bar, and next to me, three men in their 20s were talking excitedly. After ordering a drink and taking in the music for a bit, I started to have an uncanny valley kind of experience. The guys I was sitting next to they looked a lot like younger me. I felt a bit like Ebenezer Scrooge looking back on myself with the ghost of Christmas past. In fact, had it not been for my hipster tote bag with a microphone peeking out of it, I could have passed for one of their older brothers. Perhaps it wasn't the fact that I didn't identify with my Irish heritage that kept me away from Ireland so long, but the opposite. It felt too familiar. These faces, these smiles, the outgoing nature of everyone I'd met was reminiscent of my father's family and many of my schoolmates growing up. On the other hand, my Croatian family was kind of exotic to me, something to learn about and explore. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a vibe shift, something new to sink my teeth into, and Croatia fit the brief, whereas Ireland, I guess I assumed it would fall short. But the past couple of days, taking the history of Donegal and its physical grandeur, there was a depth to it that I hadn't anticipated. And then, a funny thing happened. A young boy passed by wearing a Ronaldo soccer jersey. And it reminded me of all the little kids in Croatia who run around the cafes at night as their parents sip beer and take in performances of klapa and other local folk music. I remember sitting there too and feeling at home. And for a moment, I felt like less of a stranger to my own self. For a moment, I felt whole. That was Brendan Francis Noonan. Brendan says he will definitely return to Ireland. Now that he's finished his quote-unquote homework, in other words, acquainting himself with the history and with his ancestral roots, he wants to return and enjoy Ireland as a civilian. But until he gets back there, he has a little memento to remind himself of the trip. Brendan told me that before Ireland, he was never a hat guy. But in Ireland, he noticed that men wear wool caps, and they don't look corny. 
So while he was in Donegal, he had a hat made of Donegal tweed. Brendan told me that now that he's back home in New York City, he's been taking his hat with him when he leaves the house. I put it on trepidatiously at first, he said, but now it's part of my repertoire. You can check out his hat on social media at BF Noonan. And if you want to hear more of Brendan's adventures, subscribe to Not Lost wherever you get your podcasts. Ready for more travel stories? Visit us online at afar.com slash travel tales and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at Afar Media. If you enjoyed today's adventure, we hope you'll come back in two weeks for more great stories. Subscribing makes this easy. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And be sure to rate and review us. It helps other travelers find the show. This has been Travel Tales, a production of Afar Media and Boom Integrated. Our podcast is produced by Aislinn Green, Adrian Glover, and Robin Lai. Post-production was by John Marshall Media staff, Jen Grossman, and Clint Rhodes. Music composition by Alan Kresha. And a special thanks to Irene Wang and Angela Johnston. I'm Aislinn Green, your traveling as much as I possibly can host. I am so happy to be on the road again. As we explore the world this year, remember that travel begins the moment we walk out our front door. Everyone has a travel tale. What's yours? What's yours?